0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Jonah chapter 2, it's great to see you this morning. I'm glad that you're here. Jonah chapter 2, we are about to uh, to try to unpack the story of a man praying in the belly of a a great fish, right? Who ever said the Bible wasn't relevant, right? So the next time you find yourself in the middle of a great fish... Jonah chapter 2 is is your place. Okay, so with that said, uh, the storyline, let's just kind of catch everybody up to make sure we're ready to go with the story of what's happened to kind of catch us up to that 117 as we turn kind of that chapter to chapter 2, that that area. Okay, so God has come to Jonah and God has said, I want you to go to Nineveh, Go, go and be my man Carrying my message on my mission. Go to these people of Nineveh. But instead of of going, instead of obeying the voice of God, Jonah runs in defiance against God. Prideful, arrogant defiance. Shakes his fist at God and runs in the other direction. This is what's happening when you get to verse 3 in the book of Jonah. And so just very quickly, the author is giving you a vivid picture of how defiant a human heart can be. And when you read Jonah 1 3, you also need to see a picture of yourself there. That that like the words we often sing, that you are prone to wonder from God. You are prone to leave the God you love. That, that same picture that you're seeing in Jonah resides in you. That same defiant heart that is in Jonah, that same that, that heart's in you. It, it's got pockets and places where Jonah has has, has come and he, he's you. You're him. Right? So this, this arrogant, defiant attitude toward God, we all have that in us. Okay, but what we quickly see is, and this is even more shocking than, than Jonah's kind of defiance against God is God's just tenacious and unrelenting grace that pursues Jonah. So by the time you get to, to Jonah 1.4, take a look at that verse. Jonah 1 4, God hurls a storm at Jonah. And this storm is a storm of God's grace. This is the grace of God interrupting, intervening in Jonah's life. Right? And we all need this at times. As the reader, you're starting to get a clear picture of of this reality. That God has more ways of confronting us in our rebellion than than we have ways of rebelling against God. Right? That that God always has more ways of confronting us than we have of of running from, of rebelling against. I love how one pastor put it. He says, "Um, what you're seeing in the book of Jonah is that your arms are too short to box with God. But we like to do that, don't we? We love to, to enter the ring and, and put the gloves on. And Jonah, even though God has come to him and smashed him with this storm, he still won't take the gloves off, right? You get I mean, it gets worse in chapter 1. By the time you get to the end of the chapter, in this final act of defiance, kind of this uppercut from Jonah's perspective that he's about to really just KO God with, he, he looked at the pagan sailors and just says, listen, Throw me overboard. Kill me now. I would rather die than comply to the ways and will of God. See, it's that final act of defiance. And when you get to that verse 14, 15, right where the sailors hurl him overboard, you know what? the, the story could stop there. It would be perfectly adequate for the, for, you know, for the whole book of Jonah to be one chapter. Jonah runs. God has grace. Sends a storm. Jonah still defies. So God throws him into the sea, kills him there, and God presents himself to these pagan sailors. Everybody wins, it's a good good story, but that's not where our story ends, right? We've got verse 17, look at this. What happens to our renegade prophet after he's thrown in to the stormy seas? Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there for that one, right? And and there's a quick lesson in the midst of this. I think it's just worth kind of highlighting. When you've run from God... You never know the sort of precarious places it's going to take you. You run from God hard enough and long enough and just wait. Surprising situations are coming, right? Shocking situations. In the belly of a fish sort of predicaments. They're coming for us when we run from God. These are the natural things that kind of flow from that. Okay, now before we kind of jump into chapter 2, there's a couple things we have to do. One, we have to deal with the fish, like what is going on here, and this is like this one part of the story, verse seventeen, where if we're not careful, this one piece and this one part of the story will hijack the entire point of the story. And so I think Sinclair Ferguson has, or Sinclair Ferguson has some helpful words here for us. He says this about this this one verse in Jonah. While it is commendable that we should carefully examine the authenticity of such tales, there are reasons for caution as we do so. The most important is, of course, that too much discussion about the great fish can divert us from the real issue. The narrative is not really about a fish at all. The story of Jonah is not centered on a fish. The fish is only a walk on part in the gripping drama. Focus on the great fish and we uh, may lose sight of the great God. And see, many people have done this. When they think of Jonah, all they can think of is a great fish when Jonah is about a God of great grace. Like when you, It's funny to me what happens at this point. People will instantly kind of want the Bible to turn into a how do you survive in the belly of a whale for three days sort of a book, right? So give us the points and give us kind of the, the three steps that we're going to need to make sure we could survive an episode like that. So, so we start pressing for those sort of details, but you're going to see that that's not where the story goes. The story gives no explanation for it because the story is not about Jonah and the whale or the fish. The story is about Jonah. Jonah and God. The story is not about just mere physical survival from the point of view of of Jonah. It's about his spiritual revival, as one author says, right? So, So the story is not about what happens inside of the fish's belly. The story is about what happens inside of Jonah's heart. This is the story that's going on here. When you get to chapter 2, this is what's happening. God slows the story to a crawl as he catches his prophet in a fish and sits him before the gaze of God. This is what's happening in chapter 2. Okay, now to to back up and give just a, a preaching perspective of this chapter. It's funny to me to watch how people preach this. Like there's one of two angles that that I could come from today. Like, Angle one could come from this perspective of looking at Jonah, and and you can see that his heart is starting to thaw to the things of God. Okay, that's happening in chapter two. And so we could take it from this perspective. This is how a lot of people preach it. In such a way that it highlights Jonah. So look what Jonah does and mimic him. Imitate Jonah, right? And here's the problem with that is it highlights Jonah. It makes Jonah the main character in chapter two when Jonah isn't the main character. Okay, here's the other way you can come about this chapter is to look at the chapter and highlight God with it. To, to highlight God and say, look at uh, uh, Jonah 2.9, last phrase, that salvation comes from the Lord. So everything that we see happening in Jonah It is the result of and based on what God has done to Jonah and for Jonah. See, salvation is from the Lord. From from the start, from the sustaining, and to the completion, it is all from God. Like from Jonah 1 to Jonah 2 to Jonah 3 to Jonah 4, it's all about God. He is the hero of the story and specifically the hero of chapter 2. God is the hero of the Bible. So we've got to make sure we're preaching this in such a way that you see That Jonah is not the main character that God is. That all these things that we see happening in Jonah is the result of the good and gracious hand of God working in and on Jonah. Okay, so here's what I want you to see. Big picture, Jonah chapter 2. That Jonah chapter 2 is a picture of God beginning to crush Jonah's defiance. Okay, so you can't help, just by reading through one time, Jonah chapter 2, you can't help but see a massive difference in this Jonah of Jonah chapter 2 and the Jonah of Jonah chapter 1. You can't help but see that there's been a a transformation begin in his heart, that he is starting to thaw to the things of God, that he is starting to soften to the plans and purposes of God, that God is starting to turn his prophet. Now let me just give you three or four evidences of this in chapter uh, 2. Three or four evidence that God is beginning to do a work in Jonah's heart. That he's beginning to turn his prophet. Here's the first one. Look at the first couple of verses. You're going to see Jonah praise to God. Jonah prays. Verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Verse two. Saying, I called out to the Lord. And then keep going there. I cried out from the belly of Sheol. Like from the belly of Sheol, I cried. Okay, now now think about this. When you go back to chapter one, Jonah is the only person not praying, right? The pagan sailors are praying. The captain is praying. Everybody's praying, but our prophet. But when you get to chapter two, you see this massive shift in posture. Now he is crying out to God. See, when you think about Jonah in Jonah chapter one, the Jonah there is a self-reliant man. He is independent of the way and will of God. He is looking at God and saying, listen, I don't need you. My life will be just fine without you. Jonah is living in the illusion of self-sufficiency in Jonah chapter 1. And that's why he doesn't pray, by the way. And if you want to know the reason that most of us are not praying people, it's not because we need to be told to pray more. It's because we see ourselves as self-sufficient that we don't really need God. That we've got this under control kind of with our wisdom, our strength, our savvy. That, that's the heart of prayerlessness. And that's why Jonah wasn't praying in chapter one. But when you get to chapter two, the posture has shifted. He has been humbled before God and now for the first time he realizes, I need this God. I need him. I, it reminds me of... Uh, John Calvin, when he's giving kind of this, this picture, this imagery of prayer, he says that in prayer, it's when a man or a woman crawls into the lap of their father and whispers into his ear. See, Jonah can't do that in chapter one. When you're bent on defiance, the last thing you want to be is in your father, in your God's lap, whispering in his ear. He's the one person you're trying to get away from, right? So you see this massive shift. And don't we want that shift to happen here Don't we want to be a people who are a praying people? I prayed this for us, that God would make us into a praying people, a people that would cry out to God, call out to God, who would really believe Ephesians 3.20. That God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or could think of to ask. And that we would call him to task on that. That we would pray like we believe that, right? I pray that for us, for the good of of God's name and the good of our city, that God would make us a praying people. Okay, this is what God is doing in the heart of Jonah here. Okay, let me give you another evidence of the work of God in Jonah's heart. Jonah is seeking now, he is seeking the presence of God. Look at verse 4. Says this, then I said, then Jonah, Jonah said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet, look at what he says now. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The last thing in Jonah chapter 1 that Jonah is worried about is the presence of God. This is the one thing he's trying to flee. He is not distressed because he's been cut off in the presence of God. He actually desires that. Jonah is not concerned about the temple of God, where God's presence would show itself, manifest itself, display itself. That is the last thing on Jonah's mind. But now in chapter 2, we see God bending Jonah's life back toward him. And just as a side note, if you want to know if your life is is being bent toward God, if you've got good desires for God, if that stuff is happening in you, if God, if the grace of God is starting to work in those sort of ways in you, then ask yourself this question, do you really desire God? Do you really desire God? Do you really desire God and the people of God? Do you desire people? Do you desire together with Christians? Have you ever noticed that when a person is running, they oftentimes run into isolation? They become kind of very solitary. And it's not because they're like cranky or unpleasant, although they could be that, but that's primarily not the reason. The reason they run from the people of God, from Christians, is because to them, Christians are like salt in the wound of their disobedience the last thing they want to do is be around the people of God, right? I mean, it leads us, sin leads us to solidarity, to to isolation. And if you ever find yourself saying this, I I, I just want to pull back from from these people, from the people of God here, these, these Christians. Chances are that what you're really wanting to pull back from is not the people, the people of God, but the God of those people. You see that? This is what sin does to us. It it leads us to isolation. But now the posture of Jonah has changed. He now cares about the temple. He now cares about the presence of God. He now desires God. He wants to be close to God, intimate with God. All of that is happening in Jonah. And don't we want that to happen here? Don't we want to be a people for the good of God's name and the good of our city who live under and with and inside the presence of God? I mean, don't we want to be a people saturated and drenched with God so that we're not only speaking the gospel to our city, but we're actually being the gospel to our city? I mean, don't we want that for our church, for our people here, for each other? That we we would live before the presence of God, right? Okay, so another evidence of, of God at work in Jonah is Jonah, he developed a new sense of God's compassion for the world. Now think about Jonah in, in, Jonah chapter one. In chapter one, Jonah is disgusted by pagans. He's disgusted by, them, right? He does not like the people of Nineveh. He does really, he's totally indifferent, and indifferent is kind of his best feature here. So if he's not disgusted, he's kind of indifferent to even the pagan sailors, right? Think about the the scenario on the ship where the pagan sailors are are in a fight for survival, right? They're trying to do everything they can to survive the storm. And Jonah, in his indifference, is sound asleep inside the ship. He doesn't care about them. He doesn't care about their life, live, die. He doesn't care about them. He is indifferent toward them. But now watch verse 8. In light of these pagan sailors who he has witnessed call out to their many gods, to all of their false gods, to all of their idols, seeking deliverance from them. In light of that, look at what he says in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. See, now now Jonah is not just disgusted and indifferent with these pagan people. Now he's broken for them. Now he wants the compassion of God to find them and rest on them. Now he wants the grace of God to make its way to them. Now he starts to be brokenhearted for their plight in life. And don't we want that as a church? To be a people of compassion? To be a people who are not indifferent to the pains and the problems in our neighborhoods to the spiritual condition of our city you know I think one of the wonders kind of the one one of the amazing wonders of of kind of the modern church to me is how strongly we can call out against sin and evil and how seldom we cry for it How, how seldom God breaks our heart for it don't we want to be a people who are broken-hearted for the spiritual condition of people Not just kind of in this act of, let me show you something here, call out against them, but they can cry for them, for for your neighborhood, that you can actually cry for your neighborhood. Cry for the people that you work with, that you know their spiritual condition. I mean, wouldn't it be great if God did that for this place? God, God created a posture in this place where we had compassion on people. Let me give you one more. Jonah had a new resolve to follow God. Look at verse 9. This is all the work of God in Jonah. Look at verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. I think what's happening here is Jonah is looking back on this previous moment in his life where God collided with him. And God called him to be a prophet, right? To be God's man on God's mission, Okay, so think about the moment that that happens for Jonah. In that moment where God calls him to be a prophet, there is a surrender that has to take place there. When God calls us to do something, like Jonah had to say this in an act of surrender, God, I am in. I will be your man. Wh- wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to say, and whenever you want me to go say it, God, I am there. I, I am yours. And I think in this moment of verse 9, you see Jonah being reminded of that. Of this previous commitment, of this previous moment of surrender. And he's realizing how far he has drifted. And now he's got this beautiful resolve that I am back. I am going to be your man. Wouldn't we love for that to happen here? Now, I pray for the good of God's name and for the good of our city that God would do that in many of us, that God would do that in our church, that we would be the sort of people, that we would be the sort of place that would say to God, we surrender. Whatever you want, whenever you want it, however you want it, God, we are in for that. Our chips are in. Whatever it costs, whatever you want us to risk, God, we will put everything on the line at your word. I pray that God would give us that sort of resolve, right? That God would do that in this place. Okay, now this is what the dot I want to connect here. All of these things are the work of God in Jonah. This, this is all a demonstration of salvation belongs to the Lord, verse nine. All of this is that, that God is working in Jonah and he's doing these things. And if we would say, I want these things to happen in us, in me. I want to be a person who in desperation cries out to God, who seeks the presence of God, who who demonstrates the compassion of God, who has this beautiful resolve that God, regardless of the cost, I'm going to follow you. If we want that here, I think we need to ask this question. How does God go about moving in Jonah? What is the means that God starts to work this into Jonah? How does God work in his prophet to crush his defiance? So maybe you could say it this way. What is the means that God uses to crush Jonah's defiance? Now I want to give you two of these. And so listen, though, if we want God to make us these sort of things into these sort of people, it's going to require God doing these two things that we're about to talk about. One's going to be painful. The other one's more pleasurable, right? Okay, so here we go. First one. How does God go about crushing the defiance in Jonah? Number one, God brings about great distress upon Jonah. Now just follow along with me here in chapter 2 verse 1 then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying I called out to the Lord and you might circle this out of my distress Jonah is in distress this is not a pleasurable time for Jonah this is not a a moment of comfort for Jonah this is a dire circumstance this is a moment where God is pressing him. He says, I called out to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. Now look at this next phrase. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. 95% of the time that you see Sheol used in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to the realm of the, of the dead. Like the person is dead. They're, they're Sheol, they're dead, right? And so here's what Jonah's saying. That, that God is pressing me to such a point that I'm dying. I am about to die here, God. This is the distress that Jonah is under. Okay, but he keeps going here. Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. And all of your waves and your billows passed over me. I don't know if you've ever been in that circumstance where you're at the bottom of a swimming pool and you realize, oh no, I need to breathe really quickly, right? I, and so as you're swimming to the surface, your lungs are just screaming inside of you that I need oxygen. You ever been in that moment? Like This is the sort of desperate situation that Jonah is in. The waves and billows of God are breaking over him. They are killing him. He is sinking in it. Look what it goes on to say. Verse 4, "'Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple.'" Verse five, the waters closed in over me. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? To take my life, the deep surrounded me. Weeds, seaweed were wrapped around my head. He's getting pretty descriptive here, right? Verse six, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is a man in anguish and agony. Look at verse seven, he uses this phrase this phrase when my life was fainting away this is god distressing his prophet this is god bringing about great distress now, now watch what happens in verse 3 go back up look at who jonah attributes all of this to verse 3 for you now it's important that we know who that you is this is jonah calling out to god for you god For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your, God, this are your, all of your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah looks at this situation, this distress, and here's what Jonah knows. That this was a God-brought distress. And this is what's interesting. If you look at chapter one, you would say, hold on. But didn't the sailors throw Jonah into the seas? They did. But this was the sovereign work of God. Behind the work of the sailors was the sovereign hand of God who picked Jonah up using the hands of those sailors and threw him into the sea. See, Jonah for the first time is starting to see through the clutter that this is the sovereign act of God weighing down his life, distressing his life, crushing him. This is what's happening in Jonah chapter 2. Okay, now let's try to answer this. What is God up to in this? Why is God doing this? Is this just like an angry God that has to be appeased here? And that's not the case. This is the grace of God. This is the good hand of God working for his prophet's benefit. So what's he doing? The Jonah of Jonah chapter one. He's self-reliant. He is living in the illusion of his self-sufficiency. He really thinks he would be a better God than God is. He is defiant against God. He really thinks that he can live apart from God and things go well. He really thinks that he can get out from under the command of God and things go well for him. This is a man in the midst of a delusion, right? This is a man in the midst of an illusion. That's Jonah chapter 1 in pride and arrogance running from God. Jonah chapter two, what what is God's response to this? God doesn't just let his, his wayward prophet go. In grace, he uses the work of these sailors' hands and he throws him into the seas. Why is he doing that? Because he is getting Jonah to the end of Jonah. He is getting Jonah to tap out all of his resources. He is starting to help Jonah see that I don't have the resources, the power to save me from this situation. See, God is using distress to break Jonah out of the bondage of his defiance. God is using distress on Jonah to break him from the prison of pride. You see what's happening here? This is a storied presentation of Psalms one nineteen sixty seven. God, you you afflicted me. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I was running from you before I was afflicted. But once you afflicted me, now I keep your word. This is what God is up to in Jonah. God is humbling Jonah. God is smashing Jonah. God is putting Jonah in the crucible of his affliction. And he is grounding him to powder. And listen to this. And he's doing it for Jonah's good. I want to be faithful to do this for you in our preaching. I I always want to connect for you the bruising of God, the distress of God, when God brings pain in your life, when God brings affliction in your life, when you find yourself in the God-brought crucible, when you find yourself, that, that bruising of God is really a blessing from God. You see what God's doing in Jonah? This this painful bruising, this distress is getting Jonah to the end of Jonah. This bruising of God, this distress that God has placed on Jonah is creating in Jonah a desperation for God. For the first time when you get to, to Jonah chapter 2, you see a man on his knees holding up his hand saying, God, I need you. I, I am done without you. And do you see that without God bruising Jonah, the blessing of desperation would have never have come to him. Okay, so let's kind of bring this into to our world here. You are Jonah. I'm Jonah. We're Jonah. And we're the Jonah of chapter one. We are the self-sufficient people who really do believe that we're okay without God. This is us. That is our story. And just like God does to Jonah, God will often bring a bruising blessing to our life to wake us up from the dungeon of our own defiance. You see what's happening here? This is not just the the story of scripture. This is the story of history too. That God brings bruising blessings to you as an act of grace for you. Just like Jonah. Okay, now, now let me give you a couple of quotes here to kind of illustrate this. This is through the history of the church. First one's gonna be from, from a Puritan. Um, his name is Richard Sibbs. He wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. And in that title, the reed is a Christian. See, so he's trying to help Christians see that you're a reed. You're not an oak tree. You're not self-sufficient. You're not solid. You are a fragile and a frail and a weak reed with a great, good, and gracious God. Right, So he's trying to help people see that you're a reed. Okay? That, and then he uses the word bruising. That bruising is the affliction, the distress that God brings. And listen to what he says about this. He says, after conversion, we, Christians, prophets like Jonah, we need bruising. We need God to put us in the crucible of his affliction periodically. We need the bruising so that reeds, Us, you and I, may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. See what's happening there? He's saying, you know, you know why God brings affliction and you know why God brings a bruising to us? To wake us up from the illusion that we are self-dependent people, self-reliant people, to wake us up to the reality that we are not oak trees. That we are not solid, that we are frail, that we are fragile. Bruisings do that to us. There, there is nothing that, that registers in your heart more quickly about how out of control you are of your life than when God bruises you. There's nothing that he can do. When he gives you pain that you can't control, a circumstance that you can't handle, it helps us see that we're reeds and not oaks. Oh, so listen to this one by C.S. Lewis. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. like When everything's comfortable and everything's fine, it's just a small whisper from God in our ear. But God shouts to us in our pain. Pain, it's his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. You see what's happening there? He's saying that you know why God brings bruises into our life? Why he brings distress on us? It is because we have the background noise of life so loud that we cannot hear the whispers. That that we've got it turned up so loud that we cannot hear the voice of God. So what does God do? In an act of grace, he sticks the megaphone up to our ear, he puts his mouth on it, and he screams in it. And that scream is the scream of pain by giving us affliction, by giving us distress, by giving your life more than you can handle, by putting more on you than you can kind of absorb in your own power and in your own strength. Let me give you another one. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors. He says this, "'It is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly "'until he has hurt him deeply.'" I'm going to read that to you one more time. It is doubtful that God can use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And you know why that is? Because until God gets us to the end of ourself, and typically that takes a bruising. Until God gets us to the end of ourself, we'll always believe that that in our own strength, and come with our own wisdom, our own discernment, our own business savvy, that we've got everything we need to solve all situations. That we've got everything we need to be all God wants us to be. And it's an illusion. So what God has to do is he has to send a distress upon his people, a bruising on, on his people, to break them out of that to help us see, like Jonah, that we need God. And it's when we start to live in the awareness of we are frail people with a great God. We are fragile people with a wonderful God. When we start to live in the awareness of that, that's when God can actually start to use us. I love what one pastor said. He says it this way. Could it be that too many of our Lord's servants today are praying for God to to bless them when instead the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ wants to wound them, to bruise them, to crush them? Too often our prayers consist of, bless me, bless me, bless me. Give me the promotion. Give me the the husband. Give me the wife. Give me the, the next pay raise. Give me the, whatever we perceive as God's kind of good thing onto our life. Hey, bless me, bless me, bless me. When they should be praying, wound me, bruise me, crush me. In our rush to be successful, we have fought off being wounded by God. In our struggle to become somebody, we have shied away from God's bruising blows to our self-centered egos and unsanctified ambitions. I'll never forget this moment. I was a junior in college. My sophomore years, when I met my wife to be, Laura, and so I'd been dating Laura for about a year at this time, and I really thought I was—I mean, I, I was ready to marry her. Like I, she was, she was it. She was, she was the deal. Like I was, I was in. My chips were there, and so uh, I'll never forget this moment where I. I'm in kind of a group with about five guys, and we're meeting weekly, to, and we're working through Psalms 119 at, at the present time. We're taking a couple of verses a day, and we're just trying to, to let Psalms 119 start to saturate our hearts. And so um, when we meet together, one of the first things we would do is we'd talk about from Psalms 119 what God has been kind of raising up out of that, what God's showing us from Psalms 119. And so uh, I had this fearful moment, because that week— Everything that God would pop off the page dealt with affliction, and so it was. It was verses like Psalms one nineteen sixty seven. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word, and three or four others that sounded just like it. I mean, that, that's not what you really want to be popping out as you're reading Psalms one nineteen, right? And so I, in this group, I, I basically say this: and I have no idea what God is doing. But God will not let me escape these verses. That same week is when I read that Tozer quote that I just read. That that same week, all of this starts to kind of pop out to me. And so at the end of that, here's what I prayed before this group of, of guys that we were meeting with. That God, I want all pockets of defiance put down in my heart. I want that. I desire it. God, I want to be usable for you. I want to be used by you. And so God, if you have to afflict me, bruise me, wound me, crush me, I'm in for that. Now, I didn't really know what that meant. A day and a half later, Laura walks in and dumps me. Now, I can laugh about it now, but I'm in the fetal position then, right? I mean, I'm in the corner dying right there. Okay, so, so a day and a half later, Laura dumps me. It's humbling to say even now. Within another week, uh, my oldest brother, um, weird set of circumstances, loses his job. Another couple of weeks, my dad's business burns to the ground. About a month later, one of my friends growing up, um, a receiver for us on our football team, um, was hit by a train and killed. And I always look back on that season of life, and like my heart toward that season is, God, that was a bruising. And there was pain involved in that. I mean, there's still like hurt that's there with all that, you know? But I look back and like the overwhelming thought is that was a bruising, but it was a blessing. I mean, that that was a moment where God started to redeem some self sufficiency in me. Started to break through some of that defiance, some of that illusion that I, I like I, I would make a little better God than than God would make. He, he started to break through all of that in me. That that bruising is a blessing. Okay, so can I just tell us in this room today, if we want the fruit of God's grace to be displayed here, if we want to be people with a desperation to pray and cry out to God, who will seek the face of God, who will display the compassion of God, who will have this, this determined resolve to follow God regardless, if we want the fruit of that grace then we've got to be willing to allow God to distress us for his good hand to come up on us and to bruise us. And let me just ask you the question, are you willing to have that? Are you willing for the bruising of God to come up on you? So like Jonah, he can start to turn your heart toward him. So that he can start to bend you back toward him. So he can start to free you from your own dungeons of self-reliance kind of reliance and, and defiance. Are you willing for God to do that? For God to bring those bruising blows to you? This is a necessity. If we want those fruits of grace, this has to happen for us. We have to be willing to allow God to go there with us. But okay, now here's the beautiful part. Here's kind of the part two of how God worked in the heart of Jonah, is it's not just a story of distress. Like when you read Jonah chapter two, God puts him to the brink of death, right? He takes him just to the edge of the cliff. Distress is present, but you also see the second kind of means of God. You also see God bring about a great deliverance, don't you? You see God work a, an incredible miracle to save Jonah. You see God work in an incredible way to rescue Jonah. You see the strong arm of God come and it saves Jonah. Okay, now watch how this starts to work as it plays out. Jonah, in the chapter one, is thrown into the seas. He's dead. He's a dead man. If there's ever like a story that would be a perfect episode of I Shouldn't Be Alive, This is it right here, right? I mean, the guy should be a goner. He's drowning. He's dead. He is in a storm toss. uh, He's tossed into a stormy sea right? He is sinking in it. And then verse 17 comes along. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. See, people get real confused when they look at the fish. Most people think that that fish is like a punitive, a punitive act of God's punishment for Jonah. like It's God really getting Jonah. But the fish is not punishment. Jonah is dying. He is about to drown. That fish is deliverance for Jonah. That fish is the only way he doesn't die. That fish is the good hand of God rescuing Jonah. Now watch how Jonah comments on this as he prays about it. Verse 2. He says this, I, cried, I called out to the Lord out of my distress out of me about to die, and God answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, you, I cried and you heard my voice. If you want a thing just to keep in your back pocket in the moments and in the midst of great, God brought distress in your life. Remember this, that when God's desperate children cried desperate prayers, God hears them. God hears Jonah in the midst of his desperation. God hears the man, right? I mean, that's a miracle that God does that for him. And look what he goes on to say, verse five. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. As the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And look what he says. Yet you, God, deliverer, rescuer, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And you know what I think is like the, kind of the the thing that pierces to the heart of us in a moment like that, is when we, like Jonah, realize that, that Jonah didn't deserve that. Jonah did not deserve deliverance. What Jonah deserved was death. What Jonah deserved was drowning. And yet the God of grace comes and he delivers Jonah. He meets Jonah in his distress. Maybe you can think of it this way. God creates this distress upon Jonah. The grace of God creates that. And then the beautiful grace of God in the form of a fish delivers Jonah. When, when, the, when the distress has had its complete work in Jonah's heart, in his soul, God with his strong arm delivers Jonah. And it is this combination of distress on one side, desperation, God, I need you. And on the other side, this beautiful deliverance from God where God comes and says, I'll give it to you. You need me and I will, I will be there. I, I'm here for you. I will deliver, I will rescue. It is that combination of distress and deliverance that blows Jonah's heart up for God. And it is when we start to see our distress and God's deliverance that God starts to blow our heart up for God. We'll make this final connection and we'll close. When you think about distress and deliverance, Jonah chapter 2, that's really a storied presentation of the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is the story of distress, of desperation, and deliverance. So you've got the distress on one side that the Bible really does say that the wages of sin is death, and that, that's like eternal separation from God, eternally being cut off from the presence of God. The wages of sin is death, and to kind of add to that distress, Romans 3 is going to say that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that distress the gospel distress is a universal distress. It's on every man, every woman born on planet earth. It applies to us all that we all are living under the curse of our sin. We are all going to be the recipients of our, of the wrath of our sin. That, that is all of our, our lots in life. That, that is us. This is the distress the gospel creates for us, that we have been separated from God. Like Jonah, we have rebelled against God, and God's wrath is coming for us. But the gospel is also the story of deliverance, isn't it? Romans 3.23 is not stuck by itself. It doesn't end with that. It's for, for you've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and you're all justified freely by the grace of God by the gift of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward for you as a propitiation he was the he was the distressed person for you he took the penalty of God he bore the wrath of God for you he took on all of your sins they're all stacked on Jesus and he was beaten for them He crawled onto the cross with all of your sin and he was crushed for them. And unlike Jonah, God, with the weight of your sin on him, died for the deliverance of his sons and daughters. See, the the gospel is the story of desperation and deliverance, of a a hopeless situation and a hope-filled God. And may it blow our heart up. May it start to break away the bonds of defiance. May it break us out of the prison of our own pride. And like Jonah, would the fruit of grace start to grow and be displayed and show in our life. Amen? Let's pray. I know that some of us in the room today, we are in the middle of one of those seasons of God brought distress in our life. And I, I just want to humbly remind you that that bruising of God that you're feeling and experiencing, that bruising is the blessing of God on your life. And there's some of us in here that, that we, are, we are like Jonah, asleep in the bottom of the ship in our indifference, that we know God is pressing and pulling on things in our life, and like Jonah, we are running from it. We we know that God is saying, this cannot be. This is not okay. And we're running from that. And here's what you just need to know about God. Your arms are not long enough to box with God. God has more ways of hunting you down than you have of avoiding Him. And often the work of grace to start turning our hearts away from our indifference is God brought distress. And so maybe there's some of us in the room today that we just need to open up our lives and say, God, I I want to be a man used by you, a woman used by you. God, I want to be a man or a woman who is dependent upon you who relies on You. And maybe we need to pray along with that. God, if You have to crush me, bruise me, break me, wound me to get me there, God, I'm okay with that. I welcome that. I surrender all, all of me to You, knowing that You know best for me. And oh, I pray that That we would see the beauty of the gospel. Desperation and deliverance. That we stand hopeless before a right, righteous, holy God. That like Jonah, we drown before him. But God, in His grace, sends His Son, the Savior, Jesus, the great Deliverer, to rescue. God, will you blow that up in us? God, will you blow that up in this place? And God, as you bring about distress and you bring about deliverance in our life, God, I pray that that you would start to work these fruits of grace a desperation for you, a dependence upon you, praying to you, a running to your presence, a wanting to be near to you. Uh, Just a renewed sense of your compassion to the world, of of our role to play in your mission to the world. And of this great resolve to follow you regardless of the cost. God, I pray that you would plant that firmly in this place and God, you would do whatever it takes to make those seeds grow. It's in your good name, we pray. Amen. Why not you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at Stonegate-Church.com.